Greetings and welcome to New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection. Today is Sunday, September 25th. We have a wonderful show for you. I'm your host, Dr. Keisha Ross. Thank you to everyone who's listening out there today. We've got a great topic today with uh, Dr. Danielle Simmons. We'll be talking about affirmative and loving care of Black LGBTQI individuals. How are you doing, Dr. Day, today, Dr. Simmons? Welcome. Oh, thanks, Dr. Keisha. You could just call me Danielle. I appreciate it. I'm grateful to be here today. How are you doing, Danielle? <laughs> <laughs> we yeah, are... I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to this talk. Wonderful. So before we begin, I just want to talk a little bit about your background, give folks an idea of what you do, and then we'll frame a little bit about the focus of today's show. Dr. Danielle Simmons is a licensed psychologist and co-owner of Simmons Counseling and Consulting Services in Chicago, Illinois. As a clinician, educator, and facilitator, she works primarily with Black and Brown, queer, and trans-identified individuals and couples growing through generational and historical trauma, often exacerbated by enduring systemic oppression. She is also the author of Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Minorities, chapter in the newly released A Handbook of Counseling African-American Women, Psychological Symptoms, Treatments, and Case Studies. Again, thank you for being here, Dr. Well, Danielle. So we, we have a great show today. So before we um, get into it, I just want to talk a little bit about why the show is so important. The focus of the show is to decrease stigma, specifically within the Black community. So we know with intersectionality, there are many aspects of identity. So today we definitely want to talk about the intersection of race, gender, as well as sexual orientation. So just to give you a little bit of information from uh, NAMI, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, and intersex community represents a diverse range of identities and expressions of gender and sexual orientation. In addition to these identities, members of the community are diverse in terms of race, religion, ethnicity, nationality, and socioeconomic class. This intersectionality, the combined and overlapping aspect of a person's identity, brings diversity of thought, perspective, understanding, and experience. This complexity is important to understand as a unique and valuable aspect of the LGBTQI community that can result in a strong sense of pride and resiliency. So we'll talk a little bit more later just in terms of stats intertwined with um, the discussion today. So let's start, Dr. Danielle, with just discussing some of the unique experiences of being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning intersex or LGBTQI+. <laughs> yeah, thanks for giving that uh, intro, Keisha. Do you mind if I call you Keisha or would you prefer to? Not, not at all. Okay. <laughs> so thanks, Keisha, for having me on. Um, 
You know, it's funny when I think about the unique experiences of LGBTQ, IQIA people. And what I'll do is I'll just say queer and trans um, just to kind of capture the unique individuals who might identify along the spectrum of identities, uh, sexual and gender identities. But when I think about the unique experiences, I'm often thinking about the cultural context that we live in. Because to be honest, waking up queer and trans, there's nothing particularly unique about it. Like, I think I do a lot of stuff that the heteros do. Um, but the difference is that I live in a society that doesn't always prize me and doesn't yes. always see me. And so my identity variables can be really invisible unless I come out. I think a lot of folks assume mm -hmm. hetero. Um, and so as a queer identified individual, as well as a therapist that does a great deal of work with queer and trans individuals who are black, brown. Um, I have some white folks on my caseload, but I would say people of color seek me out for a particular reason. Yes. And some of the unique things that come up in our work together is this challenge, let's say, of coming out. Like that's something that a lot of um, like straight folks don't often talk about, like, how do I come out? Why do I have mm -hmm. to come out? When do I come out and to whom? So I think being queer and trans and having to come out several different times in different contexts over the life course, like that's a pretty mm -hmm. unique experience yes. for queer and trans folks. Also, I think dealing with stigma that is sometimes overt and direct and seen, mm -hmm. but then also there's these slights, microaggressions, um, ostracization, um, just really feeling like um, devalued and feeling like if I was to show my true identity, is that going to be safe? Like, mm -hmm. is my life going to be threatened? That's yeah. kind of a unique experience as well. I could keep going. There's some other things. Like, um, I think queer and trans folk, you know, the dopest thing about being queer and trans is, so I'm a queer woman married to a trans man. And one of the dopest things about being queer and trans is I think identity variables, like we we don't think black and white we think so great just because mm -hmm. of the way we identify so we move through the world mm -hmm. with a bit of a queer lens you know we have access to community that looks like us and sounds like us and values yeah. what we value we could talk about dating so it's all kind of unique experiences but for the most part you know I think it's a really special identity I think being a mm -hmm. gender and sexual minority is kind of like a gift well, I love your response in saying that, you know, in most ways, it's pretty same, like you get up every day and you just, you know, eat cereal or do whatever. Yes. Right. So in that way, the same. But what's different are what you come in contact with the world. So like with any identity, it's not the identity within itself that impacts mental health alone, right? It is being in a system that, you know, there's oppression, right? Or being marginalized. So like with racism, it's not the color. It's not your race or ethnicity that's causing the issue. It's racism. So with this, yes, it's homophobia, transphobia. So it's more so, and the same with gender in any other area. So it's it's experiencing oppression, being within institutions and structural systems, where one may be devalued, as you said, or not welcome. So just keeping in mind in terms of, you know, some of the mental health stats, LGBTQI adults are more than twice as likely as heterosexual adults to experience a mental health condition. Transgender individuals are nearly four times as likely as cisgender individuals, people whose gender identity, identity corresponds with their birth sex, 
to experience a mental health condition. So again, as we said, not something within oneself alone making that unique, but what are the experiences? Like what are the environmental experiences? What are those social determinants that they interact with that that can lead to that? So you set up the next question very well, which is that, you know, we've talked about stigma a lot on the show on about every episode in some shape or form. So related to therapy and counseling for Black people. So talk with us about stigma in the intersection of race and sexual orientation, particularly, as you said, queer and trans, seeking mental health services. Yeah. yeah. So um, so when queer and trans folks are experiencing some emotional or behavioral health concerns, um, they, I think it's hard to make the difficult choice to even seek therapy. Like some may not even consider therapy as an option, depending mm-hmm. on the cultural context, the family of origin. Like talking to your family or your friends, even clergy, that might be a more automatic thought than the thought of seeking therapy. So once folks do decide, I'm going to seek counseling, I think there's a a huge, like, disparity. There's not enough, like, high-quality mental health practitioners who specialize in the experiences of Black and queer and trans individuals. And so what ends up happening is... Folks are going in and maybe having to educate their providers or they're going Mm -hmm. in and they're having to deal with all kinds of microaggressions or um, invisibility in that space. And so because of some of the, you know, homophobic or biphobic or transphobic stigma, I think that we're not surprised that mental health services are really underutilized by Mm -hmm. sexual and gender minorities. And so there is a way that the therapy, like the goal would be to have folks like have greater understanding of what this resource is. Like mm-hmm. really scary to come in and talk to a stranger and spill your guts. Um, yes. But if we can like destigmatize or demystify the process, mm-hmm. we're both just humans working together. Like I think that would be really empowering and that would help with um, people seeking the service. Now, another thing I like to say is also just because you can seek the service doesn't mean you can afford it. Like therapy can be yeah. really expensive. Yes. In the traditional sense, I mean, you see a lot of changes now in terms of like digital therapeutics or, you know, more brief type of of therapy. But again, depending on what's going on, brief or digital may not be the best um, at at that time. So I know folks may have questions for us. I just wanted to remind um, our listeners that you can text in questions to 682-710-1101. Again, that's 682-710-1101. So as you mentioned that now, quality of care, again, right, cultural competence and with intersecting identities, again, we know attrition rate is high. So if we look at each individual identity, we're going to see higher attrition, right? May start therapy, but end early. So you see that racially, right? So you see that with Black, Indigenous, people of color overall. Then you see that also with LGBTQIA. So now when you put that together, it really becomes, as you said, the challenge to find that specialty area because it's not just one aspect. It's like holistically. So can you talk with us a bit about specific mental health treatment for LGBTQI people of color? Yeah. So what I really like to say is um, mental health treatment, like regardless of your theoretical approach, I'm going to talk about affirmative care. I'm going to talk about work that is loving, 
and compassionate and validating and work that promotes well-being and it's empowering. So I want to encourage folks to like do away with the idea that your therapist is the expert and you're coming in to get fed something. I want people to feel empowered like you are the expert on your experiences and I believe you. So I'm not going to doubt the validity of what you're saying. I'm not going to mm-hmm. ask like, well, did you misread into that? Or, you know, like I'm really going to honor your humanity and trust and respect that. And so I think a lot of mental health issues could be avoided if we had mm-hmm. greater advocacy, organizing, yes. public education. Like on the surface, I really think there's more we could do preemptively to avoid mm-hmm. folks having to even have the trauma or crisis that brings them to therapy. But once folks come in, I want them to know like this is a safe space mm-hmm. for you to talk about your identity evolution, talk about your relationship formation and desires, talk about your kinks and your fantasies. Like I really want this to be a space where folks feel empowered. Like there's something really liberating about Mm -hmm. therapy versus something that speaks to a weakness. I think that's a stigma folks have of like, if I have to seek therapy, something's wrong with me. When really it's such a courageous choice, you know? It is. And and that's the part, that's the important part of this show is that like, no, therapy can be just because, you know, we have been given this idea that the bottom has to fall out. Things have to be terribly wrong to seek therapy. But no, sometimes, as you said, just having a space, it's a wonderful narcissistic experience in that like, there's no aspect of our life where it's like it truly gets to just be about you, right? Because we have so many roles. At home, you have responsibilities, whether it's a partner, a spouse, a parent, on your job, whatever it may be. But therapy becomes that space like, ah, okay, I could just be me and have this space, as you said, and, and be validated. So you made a great point that regardless of what theoretical orientation is, because that can be different, right? It could be CBT, DBT, psychoanalytic theory. What you're talking about are like those uh, client-therapist interaction, right? Going back to that client-centered, Rogerian, humanistic kind of approach, right? So all of the all of our therapists out there know what that is. If you're not a therapist, that's just being human, right? Yeah, we're, yes. we're human first. Then we add you all can, of this. You can add on coping <laughs> strategies to help buffer against, you know, yes. living in this world. You can add on all kind of activities and interventions. But really, I think like the kind of work that promotes self-love and self-acceptance, mm-hmm. that's going to be invaluable. Agreed. Because if you if you go in and that trust isn't there, that rapport isn't there, regardless of what wonderful skills are there, it, it's still a challenge in, in terms of healing. So it becomes so important to have that. And you mentioned earlier just about like coming out and that that's a process. And that could be fluid, as you said, not static, like, oh, this is just one time. And it's like to everybody, no, it could be a different level. Is it like to parents? Is it to other parts of family? Is it a people at work? Is it the community? So as you mentioned, that buffers are needed for that. So just to talk a little bit about LGBTQI youth, they also experience greater risk for mental health conditions and suicidality. Um, LGBTQI youth are more than twice as likely to report experiencing persistent feelings of sadness 
or hopelessness than their heterosexual peers. Transgender youth face further disparities as they are twice as likely to experience depressive symptoms, seriously consider suicide and attempt suicide compared to cisgender, lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, and questioning youth. So my, my question for you is can you speak to us specifically about treatment for teens? Because it's such a unique time, right? Because you're already, it's adolescence. Right. So there's hormones, hormonal changes, emotionally, mentally. Yes, you're forging identity. So there's a lot going on there on just any layers. Mm -hmm. But then, as you said, if not being in places and spaces where you're valued, talk to us a little bit. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I want to just say, I don't work with the youth <laughs> on purpose, because yes. often that involves so many other systems. I think if you're going to do really um, like age appropriate care, hopefully it's taken into account like their developmental stage of life. And so yes. you're considering interventions that really meet them where they're at, likely in the school environment, mm -hmm. involving potential parents, caregivers, peers. Yes. You know, I think talking about attachment, theory, like I think that there's some amazing resources for folks mm -hmm. who work with queer and trans youth. Like there is the Trevor Project. Right. The Trevor Project is this resource available. It has its own hotline 24 seven okay. where folks can call and get support about mental health. There's also the LGBT uh, National Youth Talk Line. Again, these are resources where youth can call in and gain support. They can get referral to yes. local resources. And I think providers who want to work with youth, I think being really prepared to like get in and get active with them, like be real, be direct, be authentic, because they're going to see through you if you try to be heady, right? There's something about humanity that they'll respond to. Mm -hmm. Using humor, I love other kinds of therapy too, whether it's group therapy, yeah. a social support group, play art therapy, music, th you know, like, because mm -hmm. maybe they don't want to sit and talk to you for 50 minutes. <laughs> Yes, working with adolescents is definitely um, a unique experience. I, I've, I, I work particularly more with adults now, but I, I definitely enjoy my part about teens. But they're very straightforward, right? Very blunt. We'll let, let you know what's happening. But, you know, it's great to have those resources, you know, and this is a suicide prevention month. So just keeping, you know, that in mind. And as we mentioned, I think the challenge in terms of changing the narrative is that you may hear people say, well, oh, well, they're suicidal because of this. Well, maybe if they weren't that way, it wouldn't happen. And that's the stigma and the narrative that we have to change because people from all various backgrounds experience um, suicidal thoughts. Some people have attempts, but it, it's understanding, you know, right. what is a person's reality? Is it encapsulated in depression? Is it, you know, more medical issues? Is it chronic pain? Is it, you know, racism? Are they chronically? being bullied every day? Are they being bullied every day? <laughs> right. So there's so many nuances that go along with that. But again, it's changing the narrative. But we have this narrative of like, it must be something about them, or something is wrong with them. And, and that's why it's happening. So we have to recognize it's more so us as community. And, you know, in the Black community, you know how, how, how this goes, right? When we go get down to the nitty gritty, this is the challenge of 
changing the narrative like do children do young people feel comfortable within their homes yeah you know to talk with their family their parents their caregivers who whoever it is yes. you know at their schools community so it comes down to yes as you said be more affirming um and caring you know long term and you write a lot about this so you know that's a good segue for us into you authored a chapter in the handbook on counseling African-American women and talk with us about your inspiration for your chapter yeah. and its content. I mean, let me start out. Shout out to Drs. Kimber yes, Shelton, Dr. Shelton. Yes. <laughs> Michelle King Lynn and Mahalet Ndale. Those are the authors and um, the editors of this wonderful handbook. Um, so yeah, a handbook on counseling African-American women. I was so honored to get invited to contribute a chapter. And what they asked for is they said, we know you do a lot of work with Korean trans black folk. Would you be willing to uh, write up a chapter on it? Now, initially, I will admit I had mad imposter syndrome. And I was like, they picked the wrong person. I don't have anything <laughs> to say. But um that's something I address in therapy with folks all the time, uh, is, is trust yourself. You know, yes. I've been doing this work for, I don't know, 15 years or so. Even before graduating with my doctorate, I was able to do some really meaningful work. Um, and so I've had some amazing experiences personally and professionally. So that's what kicked it off is, um, just living my life and coming out as a young person and dealing with the hurdles of coming out as a young person and then going and doing work. And I remember in graduate school, I was like, I don't want to get pigeonholed as the black queer therapist. Like I want to be able to work with everybody. everybody. The mistake mm -hmm. I made was I didn't realize what, what a gift it is to mm. be able to specialize and yes. hone in on this population. And so I think a bunch of the research out that I was reading, a lot of it kind of focused on negative aspects of queer lives. So talking about the death and degradation and despair and, mm -hmm. um, crises and not enough not enough literature was talking about like healthy loving healing relationships and that's my life like I see so many people friends family yes. you know who are thriving and so I wanted to be able to capture um, the work that I do with individuals and talk about some of the interventions I use that mm -hmm. are rooted in like again it's very affirming it's very validating very normalizing mm -hmm. and so I was really excited to get to acknowledge like Although there is a lot of trauma and tragedy, right? Black, queer, trans women are being murdered at astronomical yes. rates. That's undeniable. Yes. And also, Black, queer, trans women are thriving. Like, they're business yes. owners. They're all over the media. We're seeing increased exposure, in, you know, across media platforms of queer and trans folks. Mm -hmm. And so, shout out to all those folks, Niecy Nash, and everybody who just like, I'm going to come out and be myself. I think that's dope. Uh, we need more of that visibility because without yes. that, you know, so yes. that's what the chapter is about. The chapter talks about like, hey, this is what I do as a therapist. I mm -hmm. introduce a case and kind of walk you through some of my interventions with that client. I also offer some resources for therapists to mm -hmm. engage in honest self-reflection. Like what baggage am I bringing to my work with queer and trans individuals? Yes. There's some reflective questions to really yes. engage with. Um, there's also some support about if you're going to work with a trans identified individual, here's some resources to make sure that you're doing high quality care. This is what writing mm -hmm. a letter of support might look like and entail. So yeah, that's all in the chapter. 
Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad you moved past the um, imposter phenomena to produce um, that chapter because it, it definitely is needed as a specialty area. And I, I like that you balanced out, you know, finding Black trans joy as as well, because we do need to know what's happening in the community. But in that race-based stress and trauma way, like if we continue to be inundated with only the negative, that has an impact, right, on the psyche and um, overall mental health. So having to definitely balance it. But it's a matter of that we still need to bring it out, right, in terms of Black trans lives, you know, mattering because the numbers are so high. So when, again, when you look at intersectionality, you can't help but see, you can't separate those identities because you're not seeing that high number among trans white individuals. So again, there is privilege that still goes along with being white. So then now as that intersects with invisible or visible identities, mm-hmm. we see the differences. Um, oh, and the ways that impacts the community. So yes. here in Chicago, we, we've had several deaths, but we recently had the death of a Black trans woman. And the way that shook the community, and you can watch the reverberations, you know, mm-hmm. people who didn't even know this person are coming into therapy seeking support, either because mm-hmm. they don't feel safe, or they just feel an immense amount of grief. And so there really is this way that I love trans and queer communities because we sort of rally together to support each other and take care of each other. Because sometimes um, these stories aren't reflected in mass media, like they're Mm -hmm. not on the news. People don't even know about it unless you're like closely or intimately connected. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I think of Kimberly um, Crenshaw and intersectionality. You know, she has a great TED, TED talk on that in terms of like when you don't have a frame for something you don't know. Now, she was particularly talking about race and gender, but then now when you add race and transgender sexual orientation, we see, again, there isn't a frame. So we don't, as you said, you don't hear about it, but it doesn't mean that that it isn't happening. So just being aware of that, you know, for all of our listeners, if they don't understand, and just thinking about the ways in which you know, as community members, as bystanders, you know, how do we contribute to the community? Like, what is the narrative? You know, are we contributing to stigma or are we working to decrease the stigma so that there can be a higher um, comfort level? So thank you for for that chapter. Um, you also were a part of a um, the Counseling for African-American Women training webinar that occurred on July 21st and 22nd. When Dr. Shelton was here, she was on an early um July and she talked about it. So it, it's happens. Tell us a bit about that. Just your experience, what you would like to share. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was so great, y'all. If you got to log in to tune in, I'm so glad. I'm sure you um, sort of witnessed the magic. The, yeah. the conference was titled Worthiness, Womanness, Blackness. Council, you know, like those terms, you know how empowering that is. Mm-hmm. It was so great. We had over a hundred attendees, even Miss Jennifer Lawrence, Miss Jennifer Lewis. Yes. She popped on. Who's from STL? 
oh my gosh, we got to talk to her. It was yeah. amazing. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence, uh, it's like, no, not Jennifer Lawrence. It was Jennifer Lewis. Yeah. Jennifer Lewis, she's so brilliant. And there was so much wisdom shared and so much um, respect for the work we do as therapists. Mm-hmm. And she really celebrated us. And I feel like that was the theme of the conference. We had workshops about working with Black women, like really centering Black women um because so often I think providers can say our practice is open to all or affirming to all. But when you get mm-hmm. down to the nitty gritty, you can sort of tell, do I belong here? You yeah. know, and so we talked about the ways that you're intentional with the questions you're asking. If somebody comes on and half they have not done because they just get their braids <laughs> taken down, right? You not worry like, oh, my God, are they having a mental health emergency? You like, oh yes, we need to hospitalize them. No. (laughs) We like, oh, okay, you in the middle of your week. You got your bonnet on because you're about to go to bed. Whatever. Like there's just a different way that um Yeah, those fine tuned nuances of cultural identity. (laughs) And you know, I, I spoke on just DEI concepts this week. And again, for those who are dominant majority privileged culture, they don't have to learn about any other culture, but any other subculture or marginalized community, we have to learn about the dominant culture. So that becomes the challenge in terms of mental health and just the medical framework. And that's why representation matters so much. As you said, initially, you didn't want to be pigeon hell like, oh, I don't want to just do that work. But as you said, you realize now it's a gift because now more than ever, People are so specifically seeking not only what is your level of training, but also what is the combination of your lived experience with Mm -hmm. training. Right. Well, and I think as a provider, and I mentioned this in the chapter, like we have to get honest that the grad school training, it's an introduction. It's not Mm -hmm. sufficient to just go out and do this culturally sensitive work. You have to do your own outside trainings Mm -hmm. and workshops and readings. Um, just because of that nuance. And yes. so that was a big part of the conference too. We offered CEUs and, and actually the mm-hmm. editors of this book continue to do trainings around the country so that folks know like if you want to specialize in working with black women or even if you just have black women on your caseload, like it's a really invaluable resource. And so I encourage everybody to get it. I'll make a lot of shout outs for the book. A Thank lot of you. And and you made a great point. So for those who are listening, who are not, you know, mental health professionals, but you're thinking about your own process, you know, we always talk about how do you shop for a therapist? We've talked about that in general, but then as we go into like fine-tuned areas, is it severe mental illness? Is it masculinity? You know, is it Black women? If Is it trans and queer? When you are looking specifically for a therapist that is specialized, what would you recommend to our listeners in terms of shopping for a therapist that focuses on trans queer? Yeah. I mean, I start with do your research. You know, if, um, if you've got people in your life who you trust, talk to them, find out who they working with. That's how my business has thrived. Like, Folks, word of mouth is invaluable. You know, if you do good yeah. work, your reputation will will sort of speak, speak for itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think doing your research, so going online, seeing what different practitioners are saying on their websites and their bios, maybe watch some of their interviews, see how they talking about it. 
And don't be afraid to reach out to them and ask the hard questions. Like ask them, have you worked with someone like me? What were Mm -hmm. the outcomes of that work? How did that work go? You know, maybe what were some of the challenges you ran into? Because I think if you're, if you're proactive in this process, you can find a decent fit. And even if in the beginning you don't find the right fit, it's okay to move around. Like I wouldn't want anybody to feel locked in Mm -hmm. to the person who was in their network or in their area. Um, fortunately with virtual sessions now being offered, we're kind of freed up. We don't have to only work with someone in a certain mile distance, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, I'm often talking to people about how do you like interview a potential provider Mm -hmm. and how do you do that in a way that really centers, like I have needs and they matter and I belong here. And yeah, when, if you go to the waiting room even, and you don't like the artwork you see, or the receptionist engaged <laughs> funny, or the yeah. paperwork is kind of questionable, you know, like at any point you can decide maybe this isn't yeah. the right fit for me. And that is empowering because sometimes people don't know, and there's cultural differences, right? People may come from cultures where it is not acceptable, to ask those kind of questions, like, have you worked with someone like me? So we also may be talking about, like, from a more westernized, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of view. But when we think about now adding different cultural aspects to it, it may be difficult Mm -hmm. for people to um, ask those questions. So for those who may not ask you, mention, again, just looking at the area, the feel that you have when you go into a space yeah you can you kind of know like yeah I'm feeling this or I know I'm not not feeling this so all of that so and be going beyond signage right because some places may have signage but then we want to see what is the experience of when we work with the individual and you know as you mentioned your chapter of your book it's important for us to not only attend the trainings, continue to be aware of what is like evidence-based care, but we have to do our own individual work, our own personal work, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of understanding bias, like how were we socialized? What are the messages that we received, whether, you know, implicit or explicit? What are our thoughts? Are there parts of our experience in life that would make it, you know, a challenge for us or difficult for us? And if that's the case, how do you work? Exactly. How do you work through that? Right. Like being honest about how do I challenge? How do I handle being challenged by a client? Like, how do I ensure that I can show up like misgendering or like how, how do I respond to a mistake? Do I start to fumble, get self-conscious, make it about me? Or am I able to stay with my client? Like there's a lot of ways that as practitioners, I think we can have a lot of confidence and we can use the term expert, but really it's about that, like, humility like how am I when I'm actually sitting with somebody and they share something I can own like a bias that I had um so this idea of coming out I always feel the need to acknowledge long before somebody is talking about coming out to another person they've likely had to go through a journey of coming in to themselves like they've likely Mm -hmm. had to accept their queerness or their transness long before they decide who I'm going to tell about it. And so the idea of a therapist coming in with the assumption of like, you must come out, like that puts Mm -hmm. so much pressure on folks, you know? And I think that the, the misconception, I even had a bit of a misconception where I was like, well, if you identify as trans, wouldn't you want to come out if you're dating? And I hadn't really thought through like, wait a minute, don't you have a right to 
come out when you're ready and identify mm-hmm. when you're ready. Because you don't know if everybody's safe or going to accept yeah. that. So, yeah, I just feel like the whole idea of coming out, um, it's just so important that we slow that process down sometimes. And and as therapists, the challenge becomes like, it's not our job, right, to tell people <laughs> what to do. But we're we're human. And at times that might be there. And it, we have to think of our own experiences. So is it something within us that's stimulating that because of your own experience? Is it working with past clients and having seen their experiences? So feeling like maybe that would be a better fit here. But as you said, no, coming into yourself, that's first. Mm-hmm. So before, so it's like laying that foundation, right? So before like that presentation to yourself, to the world, anything else, yeah. you know, being aware of what is a level of comfort for, for oneself. Yeah, I love the self-reflective work. That's my most favorite part of my day is when I get to work with somebody who's really grappling with like, who am I? The yeah. chapter that I highlight in the um in the the case that I highlight in the chapter is a woman in her late fifties who is really questioning her sexuality. She calls herself a later in life lesbian. And so there's some people who have lived their whole life. They haven't been living in secret. They haven't been living a lie. They just have yet to come to accept or get to know this part Mm -hmm. of their identity. And so yeah, sitting in that work, again, that there's so much richness there long before we're talking about mm-hmm. like, let's bring your mama in so you can tell her, you know, that's <laughs> that's not the first couple of sessions. <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, it's the idea of, well, well, if she's 50, you know, someone might say that, like, well, if she's 50, she know, if she's 50 years, but there's so many other factors that, that goes on. If we think about you know, just the conscious, unconscious, pre-conscious, and then there's non-conscious and like what the psyche goes through to protect itself. So again, as we've talked about, if there is an aspect of self or identity that is not quote unquote pleasing or acceptable to others in the world, it's understandable that some people would try to protect themselves and not always on a conscious level. Exactly. I'm so glad you're, yeah. There's a lot that's happening. A lot. There's a lot of complexity, and I think to oversimplify it is to focus on coming out. The same that I think sometimes with LGBT work, it gets oversimplified. Like if we're working with trans folks, we're talking about mm-hmm. bathrooms and genitalia too much. Yeah. We're not actually talking about some of the unique experiences of yeah. a trans person. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so we do have um, a listener question um, that has come in. So the question is. Do you think we can educate society that trans LGBTQ are productive and valuable in the communities as equal as strength? Hmm. Okay. Do I think we can educate, educate society? Society. I mean, yeah, that sounds wonderful. I think um, <laughs> that's the goal, I, right? I, I think so. I think so. Um, I think we have to be intentional about how we do that because often what I see happen is folks put the burden and the onus on queer and trans folk to do all the work and labor. So they're like, go out or come and talk to my job and um, one and and undercompensating folks. So so Mm -hmm. that's that's problematic, but also sort of using your experience. I see a lot of this diversity, IEND work, you know, that mm-hmm. work is really hot right now. Mm-hmm. So I think 
companies that want to look good or want to advertise at the proper yeah. rate, they'll say like, yeah, come and tell us our story and we'll listen. But what kind of work is actually happening after that conversation? Right. You know, and that's the inclusive piece, right? Exactly. I mean, diversity is just difference. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes it can end up as tokenism if when we don't have inclusion. So inclusion becomes like, okay, but what are we doing like throughout? Is it the organization? What is it? What is happening? Well, and I see a lot of attempts. So I, I love that different TV shows are starting to have more queer and trans characters. Again, unfortunately, we're still kind of following the same storyline of like, you couldn't come out, your family didn't accept you, you were sinful in the church, and then you had to repent. It, it, some of the storylines have been repeated. But I think yeah. when folks are getting like Afrofuture, there's just some ways that I feel people are further in the narrative. Afrocentrism. You know, yeah, there's like this way. Mm-hmm. They're like, if we can queer that up a little bit, what would happen if queer folks didn't run into oppression as a part of their yeah. experience? Yeah. You know, how do we just like this handbook, I think is really wonderful. It's a great resource. But also, how do we take this information to the masses? I have a lot of relatives. They ain't reading no handbook. <laughs> so how do I get? Well, they can, you can send them this um, podcast yeah. and let them listen. Exactly. Say, listen to this. It's an hour where you can walk and listen. You can do your laundry and listen. So listen to this. Exactly. So I think making the information disseminable and, and handy and, and, you know, making it so that people can consume it in ways that are meaningful for them. Yeah. Definitely. We also have another question. Um, do you think people are born this way or decided to make it their lifestyle? Oh, yes. Come on. I love this <laughs> oh, question. Like, yeah, they make um, it well, Yes. It's such a common question, right? And my answer is going to be like, maybe both. I don't know. It depends, right? I think some people really do. I see him. I have a little young cousin. When he came into this world, we was like, there are certain characteristics and traits he has. He might Mm. be gay, super gay. But we were projecting that onto him. What we were basing that on is like feminism. You know, we we were like, oh, look at the way he forms his S's or so, you know, look (laughs) at his... Yes, the the stereotypical aspects because like anything... There's this idea of what masculinity is, and then if you're feminine, then it equals gay. But we know that there are many yeah. gay men that are masculine. Exactly. Well, and so, so I think the initial the there's like this desire to have a nature versus nurture debate, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary because there's probably some folks who did come into the world or knew at a very young age, like a lot of young queer and trans youth are coming out earlier and earlier. So yeah, maybe some folks are knowing, but maybe some folks came it, it happened through circumstances like the 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 stories that I read about the stories I hear about and the folks I work with some of them fell in love with their partner because sexuality is this sort of continuum is this fluid experience they started out as best friends and then they realized like oh I really like you I could spend a whole bunch of time with you and then that time turned into like kind of want to hug and kiss you. I think I'm developing feelings for you. Like, I really think it's possible that sexuality is so fluid that maybe it happens in this way that is very natural and organic. And maybe you have been straight. Like, honestly, you've identified as straight your whole life and later in life came to realize I have an attraction, a romantic attraction or a sexual attraction, because there are so many different ways of being attracted to people. 
And as you mentioned, nature versus nurture, I think with most things, we've landed on the biopsychosocial model because there are very few things that we have like truly identified like this gene, like accounts for this. Yeah. We know that things sometimes like substance abuse, it runs in family, but not necessarily a specific gene for that. So I think it's the interaction of so many things, right? So in in utero, it could be, is there environmental exposure that, you know, contributes to that, as you said, maybe the cousin who like from early life. But mm-hmm. then, as you said, other times, is it more so experiences? Is it circumstances? Were you, were there limited people? You know, you went to all boys school, all girls school. I don't know. Um, I, also, <laughs> I also think about um, the way that I, I think the way that we talk about sexuality makes it really hard to know. Like some people have asked me, do you think I'm gay because I was assaulted as a young mm-hmm. person? And so questioning what's the yeah. impact that trauma plays yeah. on identity formation or people would say like, you must've been really hurt by someone that, mm-hmm. or you, you know, you hate men or whatever. I think we we yeah. try to make meaning of something that's just yeah. way more complex. And then there's what's idiosyncratic because even as as we look at trauma and a lot of research, many people have been sexually abused, and for many that is not the outcome. So then again, it becomes we can't say and make that generalizable to all. So it no becomes such, right? It becomes such a unique experience in terms of like person by person. But I think that question is important for some people because I guess they just want to know, like, is that something that like you can change? Like if you're born that way, then okay, I guess you can't change it. But if you're not born that way, is it something that should? And, you know, we have enough studies like the American Psychological Association in terms of like the negative impact of like conversion therapy. So I think people ask that because there's this idea like, well, can you be converted? Yes. Well, and some folks fear the legitimacy of their identity. Like, am I really queer or am I an imposter? Am I just this way because of certain circumstances? You know, I got my heart broke one too many times. And, you know, I I think there's a lot, a lot of ways that um, being queer and trans can be looked at as something like negative. And so folks are like, Mm -hmm. if I'm this way, do I have to be this way? Why am I this way? Yeah. Yes. And just that internal struggle. But again, because of socialization and the messages that have been received. So that's where therapy becomes that safe space to to work through that. So we have another um, listener question. What can be suggested to help family members that are homophobic and struggling to accept their loved ones coming out? Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a need for greater compassion, right? Like I want to be I want to be compassionate of family members. I have, I can do this now because I've done years of therapy as a client. I can now say this, but being compassionate of um, caregivers and loved ones who maybe were more shameful and were Mm -hmm. um, more abusive. I think that that, that will happen when folks have, you know, limited work they've done around generational norms and trends. Mm -hmm. And, And as you said earlier, like, in black communities and other in communities of color, like being queer was always perceived as something white. It's like, that's something white people do. We don't do that over here. When in reality, 
you know, we all got that uncle that probably got a roommate and had a roommate their whole life. And you know, they were not free. Anyway. Yeah. Um, the way we like kind of pushed us to, to, to the side in the back in the, the community. Yes. And so, and so often when I'm talking, I'm, so I, I do work both with the individual who identifies as queer and trans about how do you work with your family? Do you keep working with your family or do you create some distance because it's unsafe for you? Do you need to, you know, lean more into your chosen family over your biological family um, or your family of origin. I also talk to families that are like, this is wrong, right? This is sinful or this is disgusting. This is nasty. And so working with them around, where did that belief come from? What would it be like for you if somebody yucked your young? Like, and so encouraging them to like, well, maybe even if you don't fully understand it, maybe leaning in with love and being genuinely curious about it and accepting that all folks really need from their families, like is good enough parenting. We don't, we don't actually Mm. need you to do grand stuff, put up rainbows and lead Mm. the parade. We don't need that. Actually, we just need you not to make us feel unloved or unloved. And and you said something important there because there is diversity, right? So there's diversity of thought in terms of so many ways, right? So just as we have it in terms of gender, expression, in terms of sexual orientation, we have it religious-wise too. So you have some people that within that context, it doesn't fit. But as you said, it may be that some family members may never change like what their religious belief is, but is it, as you said, can there still be love? and support and and not saying stuff like love the sinner hate the sin there's certain things people have said I think intending to be like well-meaning but it stings it's like a dagger to the heart Mm -hmm. if you don't have nothing nice to say just don't say nothing (laughs) and I think that's what I see is a lot of folks who come out to their families their families know good and well that they're queer and trans but they don't Mm -hmm. talk about it and I say if you're not going to talk about it because you're worried you're going to say something harmful that's fine But it's also kind of painful to exist in a family where everybody clearly knows who you are, but they don't recognize it. They don't value it. They don't uplift it. Um, They don't encourage you to bring your partner to Thanksgiving dinner, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, we have that a lot in the Black community and not just in this area, right? In In so many areas, there's things, mental health in general just isn't talked about, you know, trauma, um, isn't talked about. So sexual orientation, that becomes another area. There's so much just like within the community, it's not talked about. Right. right. And I think it's sometimes all you want is for folks to say like, I see you. I hear you. I want to know yeah. about you. Tell me more about you. You know? Yeah. Be seen, be heard. And you know, as parents, I think that is so important that no matter what, you know, as a parent myself, like just giving love no matter what, you know, that, that, that within it says, we said like the affirm, the affirming type of care. Like, even if you're going into therapy, it doesn't want to matter. Like what the orientation is. Are you feeling safe? Yeah. Are you being um, affirmed? So that becomes, you know, an important, an important part of, of the healing process. Mm-hmm. Invaluable. So we, we, we're winding down on, on our time now. So part of what I'd also like to have you talk with us a little bit about is, you know, just what can you, advice can you give to anyone looking for help or support in their mental health journey, specifically more so like trans and queer people of color? 
Yeah, yeah. So I think I want, if anybody's listening or wants to, I want people to know, like, you deserve the very best life and you belong everywhere. And so if you show up somewhere and you feel like, the space ain't for me, you can leave. But also, if you choose to stay, that's your right too. And so I would say this for, you know, black folks in predominantly white spaces. I say this for yeah. queer folk and, you know, predominantly mm-hmm. seemingly hetero spaces. Like, um, it's really okay to take up space in the world. And, mm-hmm. and, and aspiring for greatness and thriving, like that's a right. That's a birthright. That's not special rights. That's not special privileges. That's like your right to move through life without harassment and violence and fear. And so, you know, any any advice I would give is like find your people and be surrounded Mm -hmm. by them and let them love on you and you love on them. And if it's people in there that feel toxic to you, like trust your intuition. You don't have to suffer. Like, I don't think we were created to suffer. I think we were Mm -hmm. created to be pretty interpersonal beings. And so find your people, you know, maybe they're relatives, maybe they're friends, maybe they're partners, but get with your people because they'll love on you in a way that nobody Mm -hmm. else can. Yeah. Well, I love that. As you said, you deserve to have the best life and you deserve to take up space. And unfortunately, sometimes there is receiving that message on several layers, right, of not being deserving. And, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Black Trans Lives Matter, you know, the this forms because it's there this history, right? So intergenerational trauma in terms of being and having the right to be in a state space yeah. and, and, and being valued is, is so important. Well, and I also like to say, if you going through something and you want some support, like talk therapy, that's just one option, mm-hmm. right? We named so many other types of therapy yes. earlier, wellness retreats. I, I think besides like numbing yourself into oblivion, yeah. there, there's no wrong way to take care of yourself. So whether that's journaling or meditating, mm-hmm. I really think being intentional about those practices, that's mm-hmm. what makes all the difference. Intentional mindfulness as long, cause again, there's all kinds of coping strategies. Anything that is causing harm to self, we know it falls on the maladaptive end. So it, that could be eating. If it's overeating, undereating, right? You know, if it's harming oneself, all of those are on that end of maladaptive. So as long as we can, as you said, land on what's adaptive, then it's like, okay. As you said, some people, it may be retreats. Yeah. Some folks, it's, it's nature. Other people, it's, it's exercise. It's finding, you know, what holistically work works well for you. So I thought we were winding down, but we do have one more question. And this is a heavy question, so we'll see. Um, do you have a historical gauge of the when, where, how, and why the discrimination of sexuality came about? You know, I will say that what I do know about history is that... I want to take everything back to slavery. Okay, I won't. Um, I won't. I won't. Um, you you can take it back there. You know, a lot has, a lot has happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but I know that wasn't the origin of all things. But yeah. um, what I know is difference became um, deviant. 
And so when queerness, transness was in the DSM, that was so pathologizing. That was so punishing. It remains in there in some respects. Um, like if a trans person wants to receive surgery, they can't just say, I am autonomous. I am aware. You know, I know my rights. I'd like to have surgery, gender affirming surgery. They have to get a letter, a letter from a, a mental health provider to say, I sign off to say that this person is like of sound mind and body and able to um, make this decision. And so I do think there's a way that historically, once it got pathologized in that way, like written up as a mental health condition um, and the ways that it was seen as as so different like it was othered versus seen as because queer and trans folk go back to the beginning of time like I love when you study like ancient European history or something like you'll see like Caesar had a little little boot thing and and he loves his boot thing who was a guy like there's just all these stories that come out later about how normal two-spirited folks were there's just all kind of stuff but I think in western culture sometimes we can be so like um if the church said it was wrong, if the Bible said it was wrong, then it's wrong without really like putting that in some context and really understanding maybe what was going on at the time to make that so. Well, you know, that that's a big part of our community. So as as what we said there, it's like, uh, what does the narrative become? Because we have some people that, you know, that is where they are. That mm-hmm. is like what their belief is. So the question is, what becomes the way of shaping or, or shifting? Yeah, well, and hurt people hurt people. So if you've been oppressed and felt powerless, I think mm-hmm. you want to find somebody else beneath you to squash, unfortunately. And so I think, you know, people who have been oppressed for so many years, people of color, you know, we, there's a way that you find another group and be like, well, they really the problem, you know? And so it's very divisive sometimes. Yeah. As if Black and queer aren't like, they can't go hand in hand. It's like, pick one. Which one were you first? There's just a bunch of tension and discussions around that. Um, and I think that goes back to what you mentioned in terms of those who are on a journey and seeking help, definitely finding people who are well qualified because no matter what intersectionality is important. So it is a unique experience though, in terms of being black, right? And, and, and queer, because there are things that are happening in the black community that may not be happening in the white community. And so in that way, class to that, oh, yes. it just gets even more complex. Yeah. Yeah. So if folks would like to be in touch with you, how can, how can they reach out to you? Dr. Yeah. yeah, you can find me online. So I do LinkedIn. um, Danielle Simmons, PhD on LinkedIn, or you can check out my website, drdaniellesimmons.com. I actually have a consulting company. I go out, I do trainings and workshops. Um, And so that's drsimmonsconsulting.com. Or you can just email me. I'm drdaniellesimmons at gmail.com. Wonderful. And tell us about the book again. Where um, can, can folks get the book? Online. So I, I know a lot of people don't like to do Amazon, but if you just Google, um, a handbook on counseling African American women, it will pop up though. It's on the publisher's website. It's at all the other bookstores, the Barnes, the Nobles, the, all those things that still exist. Yeah. Well, this has been a very um, enlightening discussion. And, you know, again, an hour is never enough time. So we will have to have you back again. We are so happy that you were here with us, um, Danielle, Dr. Simmons, for sharing. Before we wrap up, 
We've talked about a lot of different things. Anything else that we haven't discussed that you would like to, you would like to share? You know, I just, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, taking time out on this Sunday evening to listen or whenever you're listening, if you're listening on the podcast and, you know, just, just be kind to you and be kind to others because you don't know what somebody might be going through or what they might be carrying. And so before you sort of judge or, you know, retreat, maybe be loving. It's pretty invaluable. Thank you. And I, I think we all can can work on that. And and regardless of what we've we're experiencing, I think even more so with the pandemic, right? This has the pandemic has added a whole different level of stressor. So for those who are in that maladaptive coping spaces, we said we've that's gone up. I, I said that to my mother the other day. Kindness is is so simple because we don't you don't know. You can be talking to someone and they can be literally on the verge. Yeah. Of, of the end because we don't know what's going on and that little kindness yeah. may make a difference in a positive way whereas like when we aren't caring when we aren't compassionate we don't know the negative effect that it that it can have yeah. I think it's invaluable yeah even as a clinician there was a way that I wasn't taught to incorporate love into my clinical work I thought yeah that that's was, taboo like what's you know, that yeah, you're, not yeah. supposed, you're not supposed to be loved but that's that's not true. I actually really do, you know, love and appreciate that folks are willing to come in and be vulnerable. And I, I love them for the risk it takes to do it. Yes. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Simmons. We appreciate your being here and helping to, you know, decrease stigma in this area in terms of um, the LGBTQIA community. We thank you for talking with us about affirming and loving care of Black LGBTQI individuals. Thank you to all our listeners as as well. And our next uh our next podcast um, live show will be October 9th. Please uh, stay tuned for Dr. Amla Luncheon and Mr. Taryn Callender for Everyday Lessons. Thank you again, Dr. Simmons. You all go out and um, for all our mental health professionals, get, get the book to incorporate in terms of your work. And if you need consulting, particularly in this area, check out Dr. Simmons. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care and remember healthy mind and healthy body is the key to longevity. That he going to fly next week Sunday. He going to fly. People promise organization. Tell it to other members. And people all over the end of Jamaica. That this man, Bedward, is going to fly. Well, one Sunday afternoon...